Come follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we... This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 3, Portraits of the Old Testament. This is a monthly podcast that explores the women of the Old Testament, examining their lives and telling their stories. For accompanying artwork, follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Savior Said. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Savior Said podcast. If you are a returning listener and you stuck with me through seasons one and two in the year-long hiatus I just took, welcome back. If you are brand new to the Savior Said, welcome. I am so glad you are here. I'm Lexi Austin, and this is the Savior Said season three, Portraits of the Old Testament. So let me tell you a little bit about what's going on here. Okay, so I wanted to start the podcast back up again, but I could not keep doing the weekly thing that I did in seasons one and two, where every week I just kept having to turn out more and more episodes. It was too much on me. It was too much on my family. I just, you know, had to take a break from that. But the other day, I was sitting there, I was browsing on Facebook or something like that, and I came across this shirt, and it was from cleanapparel.com, and it said, wait like Sarah, protect like Rahab, Trust like Ruth, pray like Hannah, lead like Esther, rejoice like Mary. And I saw that and I was like, oh, I know we're doing Come Follow Me for the Old Testament this next year. And I love the women of the Old Testament so much. I cannot let their stories go untold. And so I was like, I have to do a podcast. I have to do something, but I can't do the weekly thing. Why don't I move it to a monthly thing? I can just, you know, profile 12 of these women, tell their stories, and how we can apply the things that we've learned from their stories into our lives. The thing I love about specifically the women in the Old Testament is I feel like more than any other section of scripture, the women of the Old Testament are so like varied and they have so much personality and we see so many of their flaws, but we see so many of the good parts of their personalities too. We see so many aspects of their life and their culture and their love of the Savior that I just, I had to tell their stories. So that's what we're going to do. Also, I've been going through this whole thing where I've been exploring art and different art mediums and things like that. And so one of the things that I really wanted to do to help bring these women to life for you and for myself as well was to create a portrait of each one of these women. And I'm specifically going to be focusing on their hands, which sounds kind of crazy because when I ask my mom, I'm like, hey, I'm going to be doing this thing with the women of the Old Testament. I think I'm going to be painting a portrait of each one. And she's like, well, what are you going to do? They're like all in burkas and stuff like that. Like, how are you going to show them? And I was like, no, 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 no. I want to do something different. So what I want to do is paint a portrait of each of their hands. Like you're not even going to see the women themselves. You're just going to see their hands because I want each one of us to sit there and think about what their hands are doing in that situation because that helps put us in the mindset of what these women were going through because I think we'll see so many similarities between what we experience as women and mothers and sisters and daughters and, you know, daughters of God and what these women went through as well. And so I really wanted us to see ourselves as we look at these portraits is kind of what I'm thinking. You'll see a portrait that comes out with each one of the episodes. You'll see it on Facebook and Instagram and my blog. On my blog, I will have a link to the PDF downloadable version of it. So if you would like to download it, you can do that as well. And we'll just love art and love these women and tell their stories all together. And it will be great. All right. So just so you know, 
I guess like a little caveat is I want to talk to you a little bit about sources and source material because we're diving into history. And so one of the really cool things that I love about especially biblical study is there are so many sources like outside of the scriptures that we can use historically to add context and different things to what we have there in the biblical text. Um, I do want to mention that I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I welcome all denominations, anyone who is any religion or, you know, any sort of sect of Christianity, I welcome you to this podcast and I hope you will enjoy it. I do reference a lot of the scriptures that we have in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So not only do we have the Bible, but we also have the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. And especially, we're going to be talking about Eve today. And so I'll dip into the Pearl of Great Price pretty regularly. But there are also some other resources that I'm going to be using as well. There is a really excellent book called Women of the Old Testament by Camille Frank Olson. She's a professor at BYU. And y'all, this woman changed my life. I love her so much. Um, I took her New Testament class, and then I also took a class from her on women in the scriptures. And I already had a love for the women of the scriptures, but she's the one who really firmed that up and helped me understand how diving into history, we can really see them become more real to us and really kind of take them from that 2D portrayal that we have in the scriptures and bring it into life and apply those lessons that these women learned into our own lives. So Women of the Old Testament by Camille Frank Olson. I recommend, you know, just for Come Follow Me in general and just knowing about the women in general, I definitely recommend that you find that book. You can get it pretty much on Amazon or Deseret Book, wherever you want to buy your books from. Other places I will be getting source material from. Leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And now for all those of you who are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and you're thinking, oh, this is going to be very biased towards this church. No, I'm also using other sources too. We have the Greek Septuagint, which is a bunch of different books of the Bible that weren't incorporated into the King James Version. So those kind of provide a different aspect or I guess different viewpoint on some of these women. So we may be using stuff from there. We may be using the Hebrew Midrash which is a collection of writings and things like that from the time that each one of these stories took place. Um, Some of it kind of can come under the heading of rumors. Some of it can come under the heading of letters, of speeches that were given. And then we may be using other texts as well. Like we may be using the Nag Hammadi text. We have other early Christian texts, Gnostic texts. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls, other things that we can look into as well. So while we are looking at all these different sources and all these different texts, I could see people kind of like hunching their shoulders up and getting defensive, like, I'm not going to use that because it's not scripture. But here's the thing, is if you look at these different sources and you can find truth in them and it brings you closer to God and it brings you closer to Christ and it leads you to them, there's good, right? If we follow the admonition of Paul that we are to seek all things that are virtuous, good, lovely, praiseworthy, that we seek after those things, then we can find those good, praiseworthy things in historical texts. And those historical texts are primary source documents that then let us enlighten us about what these women were going through. So just because it comes from a particular source doesn't mean that we can't use it. So I just wanted to put that out there. Also, when we dive into history, something that I learned, you know, my undergraduate is in the humanities. So the humanities basically studies history through an 
artistic context, right? And so one of the things I learned from my historical classes in the humanities is that when we are in history, we are visitors. We can't go back into history and take our modern day judgments and our ideas about what relationships are and what relationships should be and how people should act and manners and culture and stuff like that. We can't take that with us back into the past and judge the people living in the past with those same standards that we are used to now. So as we go into the past and as we start exploring these women and what their lives were like, you know, make sure that we're checking our judgments at the door. I have to do that to myself, too, um, (laughs) because... Sometimes with the Old Testament, things get real weird real fast. Donkeys start talking, skeletons start coming to life, and then there's all kinds of x-rated stuff in Ezekiel. So, you know, we just, we got to hold tight, you know, it's going to be okay. All right, so let's, let's get down to business here. Let's get down to Eve. So Eve, I love Mother Eve. She has been one of the women that I've probably thought the most about. I'm not just research, but seriously thought, sat and pondered upon her role in my life and how what she did impacted my life. And what was she going through? So she's probably the first woman I would say that I really pondered upon greatly. I think she's important for us to think about and contemplate about because the way we look at Eve a lot of times impacts and influences the way we view women and the woman's place at home and at church. Something else I hear a lot of times was that it was Eve's fault. The fall of man was Eve's fault. She's the one who took the bite of the apple. She made Adam fall too. Um, Sometimes I hear that we are cursed for Eve's transgression, for Eve's sin. (laughs) That's what cramps are. You know, different things like that where we look down on Eve and we look at her in kind of a negative context. I want to change that for just a moment. So I want to take this quote now from, this is cut from Camille Franck Olson's book, Women of the Old Testament. And she says, If we scorn Mother Eve as the cause of the world's woes and the loss of paradise for humankind, we are apt to see women as weak, incapable, overly emotional, reactive, vulnerable, and less intelligent than men. If, however, we consider Eve's decision in the Garden of Eden as courageous and faith-driven and the results of that decision to be conducive to God's plan, we are more likely to recognize intelligence, strength, rational thinking, and the great ability in women in general. And that's what I think is so important when we look at Mother Eve and we look at the choices that she made, how we view her helps us understand how we view ourselves and how we view ourselves in relationship to God. So that's why I want to approach this from the viewpoint not that Eve made a great mistake, but that Eve made a choice. And there were definitely repercussions to that choice, but she still made that choice. So first thing we want to talk about is how was Eve created? We know that Eve was created from Adam's rib and all that stuff, but I believe that Eve was created in the image of God. So when we look into Moses, and this is a book that comes from The Pearl of Great Price, a scripture from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Moses, we're going to be using Moses a lot for Adam and Eve, but I'm looking at Moses 6, 8 through 9, and it says, In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. And in the image of his own body, male and female, created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created and became living souls in the land upon the footstool of God. So there in nine, we see that in the image of his own body, in the image of God's own body, he created them. So she is made in the image of God. She's not just ripped out of Adam's side like a rib, extra rib, and kind of like a throwaway leftover. No, she's made in the image of God as well as Adam is. 
Adam and Eve were given dominion over all the earth. And I think that's important to note. That's in the Genesis account that not only was Adam given dominion over all the earth, but Eve was as well. And that's in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. It says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God blessed them and said unto them, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So important to note, nowhere in the scriptures is man given dominion over woman. Please note that, that they are given dominion together over the rest of the earth, and man is never raised up above a woman. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.11, we read, Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. So let's look now at Eve's name. Eve's name in Hebrew means life giver. So when Adam calls her the mother of all living, that's what he's referring to her as. We can see equality between man and women in the name that the Lord gives to Eve. He calls her a help meet for Adam. So when we talk about Eve being a help meet for Adam, sometimes that can make us think that, again, she's a second class citizen. Adam was here, you know, to, to be a man, to be, have dominion over the earth, and Eve was there to kind of like be his helper. You know, she's the Robin to his Batman, um, his his sidekick. And that's not really how it worked. So let's look at the word help that's there in Genesis. The first word that's there in Genesis is ezer in Hebrew. And from Camille Frank Olson, it says, this is translated help, ezer, implies not a subordinate, but rather someone who has the strength to do what another cannot do for himself. Hebrew scholar Donald W. Perry argued that the woman's unique strength or help is as a life giver or a life force. Therefore, Eve was blessed with tremendous power and strength to provide Adam with a life-giving power that typifies God's help that Adam was not able to have on his own. So instead of being his backup dancer, she was able to provide something that Adam couldn't do on his own. I think that's really important when we look at the word help meet. That same word ezer is used multiple times in the Bible and is in fact the root word for Ezra's name, the prophet Ezra, and it frequently appears in reference to God. So examples of this would be Psalm 75, so Psalm 70, verse 5, but I am poor and needy and make haste unto me, O God, thou art my help and my deliverer. In Deuteronomy 33, verses 26, it says, there is none like unto God of Jershon, who rideth upon the heaven in thy help and in his excellency on the sky. So that same help that is applied to God in other places in the Bible was applied here to Eve to be able to provide something for Adam that he cannot do on his own, but in a godly manner is really what that help meet means. And I thought that was really beautiful. Another part of that, and this is going back to Camille Frank Olson, she says the second part of the Hebrew word for help meet is Kenegdo, Kenegdo. I'm not sure what the pronunciation is of that, but spelling comes important in this part. So I want to spell it out for you. It is K-E-N-E-G-D-O. And translated, meat is a compound of three common words in Hebrew that collectively appear in this form only in the Eden account. The root word within this compound is the middle word, K-G-D, which means to be conspicuous or to be apparent. 
the word is used the noun form only in these two verses, allowing for such suggested meaning as in front of, opposite, or counterpart. In the Jewish Midrashim, the word means equal, as the saying, the study of the Torah is equal to all the other commandments. The collective meaning of the term suggests that Eve was an appropriate and worthy partner for Adam. So I think that's interesting too. Again, she's giving him help that he could not give on his own in a godly manner, and she is equal and a partner for him instead of being, again, Robin to his Batman. I also think it's worth, worth noting that Eve was created from Adam's rib, not Adam's head or Adam's foot. So if she was created from his head, that would kind of elevate her, I think, above him. And we need to be careful when we are talking about Eve not to elevate her above Adam because they are equal again. She also was not taken from his foot. She's not below him. She's not less worthy than him. They are worth together. So let's jump into her story. So we're in the Garden of Eden. Everything's going great. Everything's fine. And then there's this little snake in the grass, the tempter. So who is this tempter? Genesis really doesn't give us a whole lot of background on the tempter, the serpent, except to say, now the serpent was more subtle than any other beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. That's from Genesis 3.1. But Moses from the Pearl of Great Price says, this is Moses 4 verse 3, wherefore, because that Satan rebelled against me and sought to destroy the agency of man, which I, the Lord, had given him, and also that I should go unto mine own power by the power of my only begotten, I caused that he should be cast down. Then he became Satan, yea, even the devil, the father of all lies, to deceive and blind men, and to lead them captive at his will, even as many as would not hearken unto my voice. And now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which I, the Lord God, had made. And Satan put it into the heart of the serpent, and he sought also to beguile Eve, for he knew not the mind of God. Wherefore, he sought to destroy the world." Okay, so in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we believe that one of the reasons that we are sent here to earth, one of the reasons we chose to come to earth was to have agency, the ability to make choices. We believe that Satan was not for this plan. He had an alternate plan where we would be forced to choose the right, but we wanted the ability to choose because that's how we learn and it's how we grow. So in these scriptures, we see that Satan was not happy that we chose our Heavenly Father's plan, where we come to earth and we are able to make choices both good and evil, and we learn from that experience. But we also would have a savior who would help bring us back to our Father in heaven. Now, Satan was not for this plan, and so, of course, the first thing he's going to try and do is abuse it, which is what he does when he comes to Eve and he beguiles her. And I think one of the most important things you can see there in verse 6 is where it says, Satan knew not the mind of God. Okay, how many times in our lives do we not understand what God is doing and that leads us astray? When we aren't studying his word or his gospel and we don't understand how to follow him, do we fall astray? This is something that Satan has going on. He doesn't understand what God is doing. He hasn't followed God's word. He doesn't understand God's plan. And so he kind of falls away. He assumed that Adam and Eve were supposed to stay in the garden forever. That's what he assumed because he didn't know God's mind. But we know, in fact, that God knew the end from the beginning. So he goes and he beguiles Eve. He says in Genesis 3.1, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he's saying, uh, doesn't God want you to have every experience? And then in verse 4 and 5, he says, And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know in the day that you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as the gods, knowing good and evil. He's implying that God is a liar. 
because God did say that in the day that they eat of the tree that they will die. And he's saying, oh, you won't die. God wants, doesn't God want you to have every experience? You're going to be okay. You know, do we ever use that rationale when we are in a situation where we're tempted to sin? Doesn't God want me to experience everything? Or maybe that's not really what God thought and I'm going to do it my way and it's going to work out better. No, it never works out better. It's You always want to do it God's way. When it comes to the question of did God lie when he said, if you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. You know, we know, of course, that they ate the fruit and they didn't just like pass out and pass away. No, he didn't lie. But they weren't immediately experiencing physical death after eating from the tree. However, they were cast out of God's presence in a spiritual death. And then after that, they took on an aging physical body, which would die eventually. So God was telling the truth that if they ate of the tree of good and evil, yeah, they're going to die spiritually and then physically. Not good. One of the things that I've often pondered about Eve and the story, and especially this part of the story, is how long was the space between when Satan came down in the form of a serpent and beguiled Eve? How long did it go on that he tempted her and that he had this conversation with her? How long did it go on where she meditated on this and she thought about it herself? So I think it actually probably took a long time. I don't think that it was something that happened quick. In the Bible, it happened super quick, like almost, you know, instantaneously. But I don't think it was something that happened that quickly. I think she thought about it a lot. And this is something I've kind of come to an opinion on. And this is not gospel. This is gospel according to Lexi. This is my thoughts. But I feel like as a woman, and I know that this is the case for a majority of women, not all, but the majority of us, feel an innate desire for children to nurture to grow, and to love something that is of ourselves. You know, we have that innate desire towards motherhood. So what if Eve is in the garden and she feels that desire? She wants children, but she can't even name what that desire is because she doesn't even know what it is. She just knows that she has this desire and maybe this fruit might be the answer to taking care of that desire. Like, I don't think this was a case of, oh, wow, that apple looks really tasty. Yeah, I'm going to take a big bite of it. I don't think it was that at all. I think that this was something that she thought through. I think she knew that there were going to be consequences. I don't think she knew how drastic the consequences were going to be or what it was going to be like. Kind of like before you get married and people are like, oh, it's so hard. And you're like, oh, I can handle it. And then you get married and you're like, oh, my gosh, it, it is really hard. It's really hard to be married. But it's really joyful and good, too. So I think that's this was a similar situation where she's like, I think this might be really hard and bad, but it's worth it. And it was. So I want to take a quick dive into Moses. All right. So it says in Moses 4.12, it implies that she at least thought about it. The scriptures say, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make her wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and also gave unto her husband with her and he did eat. So this wasn't just like, oh, it looks tasty. I'll take a bite again. It was like, okay, she saw that it was good for food. It became pleasant to the eyes. That again, that sounds like something that didn't happen instantaneously, that this happened over a period of time. And it was a tree to be desired to make her wise. So she knew that she needed further knowledge and she thought that this would be the way to get it. So the next question I have when I contemplate Adam and Eve, and this is something that I've pondered a lot upon, why was this whole thing set up like this? Like, why could God just not shoot us right down to earth and like, let us go? You know, why did we have to have this whole thing where Adam and Eve 
partook in the fall and was set up in kind of a lose-lose situation. They're supposed to multiply and replenish the earth, but they couldn't do that unless they took of partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So it's kind of a lose-lose situation. How was this supposed to go down? How was this supposed to work? Why was it set up like this? That's something that I have pondered upon a lot. So again, I have an opinion, but this is gospel according to Lexi. Um, I believe firmly that God never moves away from us. You know, anytime that we find ourselves distant from him, we're the ones who chose to move away from him. He never moves away from us. So if we were going to go from being with God and being in that pure state with him to come down to earth to fall into a fallen earth, we were moving away from him. He will never move away from us. So we had to have two people, I believe, proxies, Adam and Eve, for us, go down and make the choice to fall away from him. Again, gospel according to Lexi. That There's nowhere that backs that up or anything, to, but it's something that I truly believe because God does not move away from us. So how would we have started this whole mortal experience if we did not choose to move away from him first? Just a thought. Okay, going back in. So Camille Frank Olson says, by placing the tree of knowledge in the center of the garden with the warning, thou shalt not eat of it. Nevertheless, thou mayest choose for thyself, for it is given unto thee. God created an environment in which Adam and Eve were free to discover the only way they and their posterity could access the power of Christ's atonement and thereby reach their divine potential. So it's important to note that nowhere in the scripture did God punish or require them to repent after eating from the tree. Interesting, is that not? Even when we go and we look at the text, God himself refers to it not as a sin, but as a transgression. In Moses 6.53, he says, Behold, I have forgiven thee thy transgression in the Garden of Eden. In fact, when God starts rounding things up and he starts handing out curses in Eden, none of them ever apply to even Adam. He curses two things the serpent, and the ground. And the scriptures in Genesis 3 says, cursed is the ground for thy sake. So the ground is actually cursed for Adam's good. Camille Frank Olson says, in contrast to his cursing the ground and the serpent, God strengthened and empowered Adam and Eve. Because of their transgression in the garden, even Adam received from God opportunities for growth, not punishments. God bestowed a natural aversion of enmity between Satan and the woman and between Satan and her seed. That's actually a blessing. He's saying, I'm going to put a barrier between you two. One of the things that God does say about the serpent in Genesis 3 is in 15. He says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Okay, I love this because I feel like When we look at Christ and Christ's ministry, one of my favorite scriptures comes from Luke 4. And this is when Christ comes out of the desert. You know, he'd been fasting, he'd rebuked Satan, and he walks down into Nazareth and he announces his divinity and he announces his mission. And it's in Luke 4, 18. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty them that are bruised. How cool is that? We rewind into Genesis and we see that Satan will have the power to bruise his heel. Okay, so the idea being like sin can cause us hurt and it can cause us harm. But then Christ saying, I'm coming to set at liberty them that are bruised. Those who have sinned and fallen short of the goodness of God, I'm here to set them free. I'm here to save them. 
I'm here to save them from the fall of Adam and Eve. How cool is that? Christ truly heals us from sin and he sets us free from Satan's grasp. So let's go back into the story. I just love pointing that out. Sorry. Back into the story. So Adam and Eve took a big old bite of the apple. Okay, not good. They start to understand truth and they realize that they were naked. It's naked time. All right. In Genesis 3, 7, and the eyes of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And then in eight, and then they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Okay, pause there real quick. I want to say one of the things I read in one of the commentaries when I was going through the story and looking at the different versions and stuff like that and things people had said is the cool of the day when God was walking through the garden, they can't quite figure out what time of day it was. Personally, I'm kind of like, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Just God was in the garden. I think that's cool. Um, But in the cool of the day, to me, in the South, the coolest part of the day is in the morning before the streets and ground and everything have heated up because at night, everything's heated up throughout the day. So there's still warmth coming from the ground. So it's not a very cool part of the day. However, some of the gospel commentary commentary I read said that the cool of the day kind of references the cool winds that blow there in Jerusalem, I guess, from when they were writing this. I don't know, that it seems to happen in the evening. So some of the Hebrew scholars actually thought that God was walking through the garden in the evening. So maybe... Adam and Eve took a bite of the apple in the morning, and then God walked through the garden in the evening. Just interesting little thought. Okay, continuing on. God was walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So I think a lot of times we think about this as literal nakedness, like they were straight up naked, but they are also spiritually naked as well. They had now transgressed one of God's laws. Camille Frank Olson says, nakedness suggests being unclothed, unprotected, ashamed, and ill-equipped to succeed. And only after eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge could they acknowledge their need for a covering. In truth, Christ's perfect love is the only complete covering. The Hebrew word for the atonement literally means to cover or covering. And the imagery evoked of the Savior's sacrifice being symbolized by a covering indicates what could have been the first blessing of the fall of Adam and Eve awareness of the absolute need that we have for a redeemer. They were naked, so they tried to come up with their own solution, which was fig leaves. However, you know, I imagine like when I was younger and I was thinking about the story, um, I imagined going out to my backyard where we had kind of like a maple tree and taking the maple tree and like taping with that clear, you know, tape that you've got, you wrap gifts with or whatever, taking that clear tape and like trying to tape the leaves together to make a dress out of. And I was like, that just would not work well. Yeah, it would not, it would not be very well. It would, it would be crude and, you know, there would be like holes and stuff in it. It was not, not a good covering, right? Well, we are inadequate to cover our own sins. It would be like that. It would have lots of holes in it. It would fall apart. It would decay. We can't cover our own sins. Only atonement of Jesus Christ can cover us. Much like this, God provides a much more effective covering for Adam and Eve, animal skins. So in order to make those animal skins to cover them and keep them warm against the elements, but also to serve as a symbolic reminder of the sacrifice of his son, he had to sacrifice an animal to make those animal skins. So every time that they put on those animal skins, they were reminded then of the covering, not only that God provided for them and he's taking care of them, but also that he's taking care of them spiritually, that they are covered spiritually by the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's what it symbolizes to them. And I think that's so beautiful. So let's talk about more what God is talking to them after, 
you know, they fall and everything. And he's telling them, you know, I'm cursing the ground for thy sake and everything. So back into Genesis, Genesis 3.16. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. And in sorrow, thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. Okay, that's the scripture that always makes me go, uh, whoa, hand in the air, rule over me, what? We're going to talk about that. (laughs) But so hold that thought, put a pin in it. First, we're going to talk about the sorrow thing, okay? So Camille Frank Olson, my, you know, lovely Camille Frank Olson, she's got lots of good stuff about the Hebrew words. The Hebrew word translated for sorrow does not imply feeling sorry over something. It means pain or hurt. Furthermore, Multiply in this passage means repetition or something happening over and over again, not something being added or increased. Therefore, God promised Eve that in life, in the fallen world, it would require her to do painful things over and over and over again, meaning that she would repeatedly experience pain associated with bearing and rearing of children. This is actually a blessing. God is not cursing her. He's giving her a blessing. You are going to be bringing precious spirit daughters and sons of God into the world and giving them physical bodies. That is a blessing. And it wasn't until Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden that Eve's role as a life giver comes into play. It wasn't until they were cast out that she was given this blessing to be able to create bodies in life for the children of God. What an incredible thing. Um, I do want to mention that sometimes as women... Um, Our roles are filled with a little bit more sorrow and a little bit less conception. I feel that personally as someone who is infertile and struggled with infertility for a long time. um, When I read stuff like this, I'm like, yeah, there's sorrow and it's going to be painful, but at least you got to have kids, you know? And I did read a talk. I was actually going through and looking for different talks from General Conference. And there's one by Russell M. Nelson from 1987. And it's called Lessons from Eve. And if you want to go check it out, I recommend you do. But he says in this talk, For you childless sisters and those without companions, so single as well, remember the eternal timetable of the Lord is much longer than those lonely hours of your preparation or the total of this mortal life. These are only microseconds when compared to eternity. Your willingness and your worthiness are surely known to him. And the blessings, okay, so and end quote there. And the blessings that we get is that we are going to be mothers, maybe not in this life, but we have the ability to be life givers to those around us and the potential for the future as well. So now I want to unpin the let thy husband rule over thee thing. And let's go back to that, okay? Well, let's talk about it. So Genesis 3.16, thy husband shall rule over thee. This has been used throughout history to justify mistreatment of women. However, there's a quote from Gordon B. Hinckley that I love that kind of says, no, that's not what this means. He says, the word rule means that the husband shall have a governing responsibility to provide for, to protect, to strengthen and shield his wife. And that's his role in a marriage. I think that's really interesting. Okay, Camille Frank Olson says, furthermore, it has been suggested that the Hebrew preposition in the word translated over in the phrase rule over is often translated as with in the Hebrew Bible. Adam and Eve could then be said to rule together in a partnership. Okay, so I'm seeing this now. That then would fit in with what we saw before where they were given dominion over all the earth. Interesting, huh? Okay, so let's talk about after the garden. Right here, we're mostly going to have to turn to the book of Moses because in Genesis, it's just like, "Ah, they were kicked out of the garden. Adam knew his wife and then she had kids. 
Like, that's the end. Happily ever after. Like, or not so happily ever after, I guess I should say. That's pretty much what what Genesis has. So Moses adds a little bit more character to this. So it tells us, basically, I'm going to paraphrase for a little bit. Basically, they're working the ground. They're tilling the ground. They have children. They prayed. They made sacrifices. They were even visited by an angel who explained the symbolism behind the sacrifices, that it was to lead them to Christ. And it shows them how Christ will sacrifice himself for them. And Adam and Eve are joyful to learn this. And we see this in their testimonies. And their testimonies are recorded in Moses 5. 10 is Adam and Eve's in 11. So 10 says, And in that day, Adam blessed God and was filled and began to prophesy concerning all the families of the earth, saying, Blessed be the name of God. For because of my transgression, my eyes were opened. And in this life, I shall have joy. And again in the flesh, I shall see God. He's blessing God because of atonement of Jesus Christ because of our Savior, who's going to help bring him back to God. Um, I think it's also interesting in that verse that Adam takes ownership. He says, my transgression. He takes ownership of his choice. Whereas before in the story, (laughs) I didn't mention this, but before in the story, this has always made me kind of giggle a little bit when God comes and he's like, Adam, what are you doing? And he's like, "Uh, the woman you gave me made me eat the fruit. You know, you you were the one who gave me this woman and she's over here eating fruit and throwing it at me. I don't know. You know, he kind of is like, oh, I didn't do it. I didn't, you know, hands up in the air. Whereas now he, you can, we can see that he's matured a little bit. And he says, because of my transgression, my eyes are opened. Interesting also, Adam uses the word I. In this life, I shall have joy. And again in the flesh, I shall see God. Okay, here's Eve's testimony in 11. Listen to see how hers differs. And Eve, his wife, heard all these things and was glad, saying, Were it not for our transgression, we never should have had seed and never should have known good and evil and the joy of our redemption and the eternal life which God giveth unto all the obedient. And then in 12, it says, And Adam and Eve blessed the name of God, and they made all things known unto their sons and their daughters. Okay, I love that testimony of Eve so much. You know, she's like, not only is she thinking about herself, you know, her transgression, but how the choices that she made are going to bless the human family for the rest of all time. And I love that beautiful testimony that she has set where she says, we never would have known the joy of our redemption. We never would have known our Savior and the importance of our Savior and have eternal life with God. That's what our Savior brings us. And actually, that's really what I chose to focus on when you see the painting that I did for Eve. It has her testimony on the bottom, and that's actually what it says, where it talks about, we never would have known the joy of our redemption and the eternal life which God giveth unto all the obedient. I love in 12, where it talks about, they taught all these things to their sons and their daughters. Um, Again, I love that they taught both the boys and the girls. I feel like by the time we get into the New Testament time, we're at the point where men are kind of elevated above women in status. And I don't know that they would have taught their sons and their daughters. But at this point they're teaching both their sons and daughters, which I think is so cool. All right. So I want to talk to you a little bit about art. So again, I've been going through an artsy thing and I I decided I wanted to do portraits of each one of these women. So Eve's portrait, um, when you see it, you'll see it's kind of Eric (laughs) Carle-esque. I guess you could say, you know, I'm a children's librarian. So I love Eric Carle. I love um, a lot of illustrations, but I really love working with collage and I tried painting Eve in various different scenarios using just acrylics, regular acrylics and just painting right on canvas and it never turned out right. Like it just didn't feel right. 
Also interesting, as I was trying to paint Eve, I kept trying to paint her in the garden. At one point, I tried to paint her looking up at the apple and, you know, doing the thing where she's kind of meditating on the apple where, you know, I was like, I don't know how long this took, but, you know, she's looking at the apple. And another painting, I tried to portray her looking at the apple and seeing us, like her future sons and daughters in the apple, but it didn't turn out right. And so then I started thinking, I'm like, how many of us have made mistakes in our youth that we would want forever immortalized, <laughs> you know? Um, that was one mistake she made when she was younger. She lived the rest of her life grateful for her Savior and following Christ and teaching her sons and her daughters about Christ. So she reached for an apple once, but she spent the rest of her life reaching towards the light of Christ. And that was the point when the portrait kind of turned, where instead of having her pondering upon the apple or reaching towards the apple, I wanted to have her reach towards Christ. And I started to remember when I was in college and I was actually in Sister Olson. She was Sister Frank at the time. But Sister Olson's class, Women in the Scriptures, one of the things we had to do was had, had to do a project kind of showing what we had learned that semester. And I did a project on Esther because when we get to Esther, y'all, the episode's going to be like three hours long because I love me some Esther. Like she's my favorite ever. So I chose Esther to do my project on and I wanted to make a children's book. And again, being influenced by Eric Carl, the whole children's book was in collage. And so I started thinking about that and I was like, well, acrylic obviously is not the medium that I feel like I'm being very expressive in. So I want to show this hand. I want to show it reaching towards the light of Christ. Let's see if I can do it in collage. And so, you know, I went through, painted a bunch of different textures and stuff and different skin tones and leaves and stuff like that and the different colors. Then I was able to go and put them together, cut out the different shapes and put it together. I think it came together very nicely. So when you look at the portrait, you're going to see Eve's hand reaching towards the light of Christ and her testimony at the bottom saying, You know, we never should have known the joy of our redemption and the eternal life which God giveth to all the obedient. So I think that is what I want to leave with you guys. Reach towards the light of Christ. Reach towards our redemption and the goodness of God. And when we talk about Adam and Eve, that's what we should focus on. The fact that we have a Savior who does redeem us from the fall and that it's a blessing that we have that Redeemer. So hope you guys will think about that next time you hear the story of Adam and Eve. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. For artwork, show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content, including artwork, in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.